Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by Joanna Whaley-Cohen of New York University. Professor Cohen will deliver the first Frankie lecture in this semester's series, History of Food and Cuisine. Her talk is entitled, Banquets and Politics in China. So we generally like to think that private and public domains of human activity exist in more or less separate and autonomous realms. Of course, in every society, there are always exceptions to this general rule, often exemplified, in fact, in the realm of food. That is, in general, eating is a private activity. But in fact, in many cultures and at many times, eating has been incorporated in various ways into public life. One thinks of Louis XIV's public dining events. In more contemporary terms, one recalls perhaps George W. Bush's vomiting into the lap of the Japanese Prime Minister at a state dinner in Tokyo in 1992. And very recently, recall the intense scrutiny of the menu, the guest list, the seating protocols, the clothing, and other aspects of the so-called private White House dinner and the state banquet the Chinese Premier Hu Jintao. So I make no claim at all that the link between banquets and politics is something unique to China. But in China, the connections between banquets and politics are, are rather distinctive. To begin with, a key characteristic of Chinese culture is the notion of connectedness, if you like a metaphor in every aspect of life. Almost anything you care to think of can, and often does, stand for something else as well as itself. And moreover, conceptually, things that might seem to us to be contrasting opposites in Chinese thinking are understood to exist along a continuum. They balance and shade into one another and rather than working against one another. Among other things, this means that the boundaries between what's private and what's public are often quite blurred, and that one domain is understood to stand for or relate to the other. For instance, the human body can stand for the body politic and vice versa. A bloated human figure can suggest corrupt rule, and corruption in public life is linked to extravagance in private, with many cautionary tales about personal excesses leading to political downfall. So in China, the notion that the personal is political possesses a very particular resonance. Not surprisingly, then, the fundamentally private act of eating has been a central act of public life in China, where, in any case, as everybody knows, food occupies central stage. And as a result, banquets have functioned as recognized instruments of social and political interaction. In a culture, and here I admit that I'm being a little bit sweeping, but in a culture where comprehensive political control has more often than not been a goal of the rulers, this phenomenon has meant that food is openly all over politics and politics all over food, whether in ancient ritual and sacrifice, in the imposition of sumptuary laws about who's allowed to eat what and what circumstances, in banditry practices and in other ways. <coughs> Today, I'm going to take a look at banquets and politics in three different time periods. First, in antiquity, the crucial formative period. Second, in the 18th century, a time when gastronomy featured prominently in elite cultural life. And at the same time, imperial intrusion into elite cultural practices reaches Moreover, the 18th century is the most recent historical moment of Chinese global power. It's a time that's increasingly being seen as the true precursor to the present day. I'll conclude by completely a contemporary people's republic by way of suggesting certain significant continuities of the past. From antiquity, food cooking both was central to Chinese identity. Fu Xi, one of his legendary founders celebrated in Chinese creation myths, was best known for having taught people how to cook. 
Chinese soon came to regard civilized people as cooked and defined the uncivilized as raw. Characterizations that at the same time had crucial distinctions between who ate what and whether they cooked their food or gnawed it raw. By implication, this approach also dealt with what you ate in the sense that grains are mostly inedible and less cooked, whereas meat can be eaten raw or cooked. Table manners also figured into this assessment of other people's degree of civilization. This notion that what you ate defined your level of civilization lasted at least into the end of the imperial period. For instance, the great 18th century imperial ethnography defined indigenous peoples in terms of what they ate. Noting about some of the tribes, this is a quote, that they collect and cook any animal that wriggles or moves, including rodents, birds, and insect larvae. This is eaten straight from a three-footed pot. They do not use dishes for eating and drinking. And later, the same text notes that, quote, when the Gushagurla catch animals, they gnaw them noisily, just as a wolf would. A century or so later, the Chinese residents of Shanghai based their assessment of another group of outsiders, in part on the latter's eating habits, the British passion for roast beef, which, among other things, led them to install evil-smelling slaughterhouses in China, aroused among local Chinese a strong distaste precisely for those sweet peoples. Even today, the American penchant for slags of red steak has been known to arouse horror and disdain in some Chinese circles. Obviously, the idea that food preferences and cooking modes mark one's superior, superiority over one's neighbor is common to most cultures, and it should be said too, but it was only one part of the early Chinese sense of superiority. What they particularly thought distinguished their civilization in addition was their attention to the ritual observances around which they organized their society and government. Above all else, ritual observance defined what it meant to be civilized. Those who adhered to the rituals counted as civilized, while those who did not ranked among the barbaric. Many of the most important rituals involved food, the etiquette that was a central aspect of banqueting practices. So procuring, selecting, preparing, and serving food in an imperial household and at court as well as table manners, feature very prominently in the classic texts on ritual that are part of the Confucian canon of great books. This prominence was due not least to the central principle of the Chinese ritual observance, namely the regulation and powers of appreciation of all of the five senses, all of the five senses, which were understood to be organically connected to the proper exercise of socio-political power. That is, it was the senses that held the key to understanding and ruling the world. When the ruler experienced the world through his senses, he could understand it and command it in harmony. In other words, the spectacles he beheld, the sounds that he heard, what he smelled and what he tasted, all bore a profound political significance that far surpassed the pleasures of eye and ear and of the palate. Properly modulated sensory experience, in other words, was politically crucial. And that was the reason that the court was full not only of specialists in ritual performance, but also of musicians, and also that palace kitchen staff always numbered in at least the thousands. In that world of connectedness, the preparation and consumption of food provided a recurrent analogy for adept government or moral action, and cooking itself came to serve as a useful metaphor for government. Famously, the early Taoist master Lao Tzu claimed that governing the country is in principle like cooking a small fish, meaning that great care and attention were in both cases essential or things might fall apart. The analogy hardly needs to be spelled out. 
In cooking, it was necessary to understand flavors, but blend them successfully. While in governing, it was necessary to grasp people's sufferings and aspirations in order to satisfy their needs. Even in the afterlife, which, although a different register of existence, was understood as extremely important, catering for the ruler's palate could not be left to chance. Archaeologists have recently unearthed entire kitchens for the use of the dead. Sometimes a king's cook was buried with him to perpetuate his favorite cuisine during the banquets that he was fully expected to enjoy in his post-mortem existence. This understanding of rulership both meant that those attached to the imperial kitchens, and not just the actual cooks, generally wielded considerable political power. And conversely, it led to the view that cooking skills could constitute a fine qualification for ministerial appointment. And finally, it meant that banquets played a really important role in political life. Because the ancients regarded attitudes towards food as a yardstick by which to measure a person's character and moral standing, banquets prevented diverse scenarios for the judgment of human character. Rulers laid on entertainments and feasts just to observe how their guests comported themselves and to examine their future bad or good fortune. The ways in which food was presented and offered and received was extremely important, and from there you find that banquets really took on a very important political role. Banquets were fraught with rules and etiquette, and bad table manners could be the undoing of a kingdom. We learn, for instance, from the classic record of ritual, the Liti, the following protocols on how to set food out on a table. Quote, In all cases, the rules for serving dishes for an entertainment are as follows. The meat cooked on the bone is set on the left, and the sliced meat on the right. The rice is placed on the left of the parties on the mat and the stew on their right. The minced and roasted meat are put on the outside and the pickles and sauces on the inside, the onions at the end and the wines and broths to the right. When slices of dried and spiced meat are put down, where they are folded is turned to the left with the ends put to the right. Don't forget. And again, on etiquette. If a guest is of lower rank than the host, he should take up the rice, rise, and decline the honor he has received. The host then rises and objects to the guest's request to withdraw. After this, the guest resumes his seat. After they have eaten rice three times, the host will invite the guests to take the sliced meat, from which they will go on to all the other meats. When the host has not yet gone over all the dish, dishes, a guest should not rinse out his mouth with wine. And yet again, this is my favorite one, on table manners, don't roll rice into a ball, don't bolt down the various dishes, don't swill down the soup. Don't make a noise when you eat. Don't crunch bones with your teeth. Don't put back fish you have been eating. Don't throw bones to the dogs. Don't snatch at what you want. Don't add condiments to the broth. <coughs> if the guest adds condiments, the host should at once apologize for not having had the soup properly seasoned. <laughs> the banquet menu itself also sent a certain message. For instance, eating meat, and especially eating it in abundance, was a form of conspicuous consumption, so that to serve a fine banquet, including dishes of meat, to one's guests was a mark of great respect, and to refuse, for whatever reason, to eat what one was offered was a big insult. So alliances could be made, settled, or destroyed at the banquet table. Moral judgments about wealth and abundance, about modesty and propriety, about integrity or dishonesty, all were condensed into the miniature world that surrounded the banquet. Banquets, too, were often the occasion for attempts to trick or humiliate political opponents. They were the scene of attempted assassinations, the detention of one or more guests, intentional poisonings, poisonings, and so on. In fact, poisoning was so common that 
many rulers had tasters, and several tasters are recorded to have died at the banqueting table after tasting the food and drink of their masters. On one occasion, the emperor's brother was invited to a banquet and placed in the seat of honor, and two glasses of wine were put in front of him for making a toast. He was, the emperor was just going to join in when the empress knocked over his glass, which of course was poisoned, to prevent him from using it. Generosity or stinginess at a banquet could have political consequences. Seating arrangements often spoke volumes and functioned as forms of promotion or humiliation. One of the most famous episodes in Chinese history involved a banquet. In the wars that brought down the Qin Empire in 206 BCE, the main contenders were Xiang Yu and Liu Bang. Liu Bang realized that he could not defeat Xiang Yu's army and went over to Xiang Yu's camp at Hongmen to declare his loyalty and point out how he was actually supporting Xiang Yu, contrary to rumors which were about by ill wishes. Xiang Yu fell for this ruse and invited Liu Bang to stay for a banquet. Xiang Yu's followers, of course, saw this as a great opportunity to get rid of Liu Bang, so one of them offered a toast and then said, My lord is drinking with Liu Bang, but we have no entertainers here in the army camp. May I perform a sword dance? Which, with the approval of Xiang Yu, he duly did, fully intending to assassinate Liu Bang. Cut a long story short, Liu Bang's followers managed to protect him from these dance so that he was able to leave unscathed, making excuses about having drunk too much. Indeed, it was a lost opportunity, and Liu Bang eventually became the first emperor of the Han Dynasty. Between the immense ritual importance of food and the use of banquets for political purposes, it's not surprising that palace kitchens became a vast culinary enterprise. This was especially true in the late 18th century, when the great Manchu emperor, Qianlong, who reigned from 1736 to 95, set out to establish cultural leadership over his Chinese subjects in every possible arena, not just as a connoisseur and in some cases practitioner of art and literature, but also in the realm of gastronomy, which ranked as one of the high arts in Chinese culture. So consumption, in every sense of the word, was politically tinged, and one of the forms that conspicuous consumption took at the court was patronizing different cuisines as a way of demonstrating both unlimited access and unsurpassed knowledge on the part of the emperor. Providing for palace kitchens at this time was both an important act of consumption and a major logistical feat in terms of both quantity and quality. The provision of both everyday and luxury foods, and as we'll see in a moment, that in, in that environment, necessities and luxuries were not always easy to distinguish. The provision of these relied on a wide range of suppliers. Some grains, vegetables, fruits, and meat came from the imperial farms and orchards, although certain other items, notably pork, chicken, and fish, were purchased on the market. Since one part of the job of the imperial household involved compiling information about products deemed acceptable for consumption at court, the inclusion of one's product on such a list obviously constituted a major marketing boost for the producer or manufacturer. Among other things, this revealed that 18th century Chinese society was a society of consumers for whom a range of purchasing options existed, and for whom branding, as we call it now, was quite a familiar concept. Imitations and knockoffs were quite common. Not least presumably because the purveyor might have exhausted his supplies after meeting the needs of the palace. Other items, including game, fresh and salted fish, and honey, were submitted as tribute or mandatory gifts by senior officials stationed throughout the empire by the various imperial princes. Since some provisions had to travel a considerable distance, and presumably not all of them could be used if they arrived, they were kept fresh on ice, stored in specially constructed caves, which was and the ice was also used 
possibly not the same ice, but ice is also used as a form of air conditioning in some countries. Not only foodstuffs, but also tea and the water in which to infuse it had to be procured. Notably, sweet water was transported from mountain springs whose distinctive yet delicate flavour was said to be discernible and identifiable only by the most discriminating tea drinkers. Amongst these, the Chenlong Emperor certainly counted himself. It was said that he had water tested at a number of different springs before deciding that water from the Jade Spring, northwest of Beijing, was the very best of all. Bucketfuls were brought daily to the palace for his enjoyment. However, he actually preferred to drink his tea with milk, which must surely have made detecting the source of the water more difficult. Here it must be said that the gourmet reputation of the emperor was a great pain to project doesn't seem to have accorded altogether with his actual gastronomic preferences. And it also perhaps should be said that, it, that the habit of drinking tea with milk that was so popular in England, I believe, may have come from this imperial practice, but I've yet to find the actual connection. The scale of food supply for the palace was enormous because of the vast numbers of people involved, and the sheer quantity of food served to the emperor alone. For example, a single undated record of supplies of food and related items used in a single day at the Changshun Palace, probably occupied by some of the imperial princes and their families, includes the following amounts. Here at Kati is equivalent to about one and a third pounds. 30 kathis of white noodles, this is one day. 30 chickens, two kathis of vinegar, 30 kathis of bean curd, 50 kathis of split firewood, 15 kathis of pork, 5 kathis of salt, 500 kathis of coal, five, and it's listed in this order, 5 kathis of vermicelli noodles, 4 ounces of pepper and aniseed, 8 kathis of pork fat, 4 kathis of sesame oil. And the cost, similarly, was enormous. One calculation put yearly expenditure on meat and fish alone at around 40,000 silver tails, which you can compare to the cost of an acre of good farmland near the capital, which is roughly 10 tails about the same time. Typically, far more food was served to the emperor than he could possibly have consumed, as we can see from this menu, for an autumn breakfast in 1779, which the following dishes were served. Hot pot with bird's nest and duck, lamb, sautéed chicken with soft bean curd, a stew of duck, dog meat and pork, bamboo shoots, bird's nest with chicken, various thinly sliced meats, deep fried duck with meat, quick fried pork, quick sautéed chicken eggs, sautéed chicken feet, cured pork, donuts, chicken soup with dumplings, lamb with steamed gruel and a fruit congee. On another table were 14 dishes of eight treasure stuffed buns, four dishes of yellow greens, three dishes of milk. On a third table, some baked goods, and on a fourth, baked of baked meat. This meal is similar to hundreds more whose records can be seen, and may in itself seem to us a kind of individual banquet. Of course, the emperor didn't even touch most of it, picking out a few favourite morsels and sending back the rest. A major part of the reason for serving the emperor far more than he could possibly eat was, of course, display, but it also involved a form of sumptuary law, whereby his leftovers were passed on to imperial family members often untouched leftovers, to family members visiting dignitaries and others in the form of gifts or as honorific bestowal of leftover imperial provender, parceled out according to strict rules based on rank. The fact that these dishes had originally been placed on the emperor's table gave them an additional prestige, rather as the knowledge of the provenance of a work of art might add to its value. A variant of this was a common practice whereby the emperor passed on to senior officials and family members 
at least some part of the exotic edibles he received as required tribute or as gifts from the provinces that might not be readily available to others. Common items doled out in this way included venison, which mostly came from the northeast. The various parts of the deer, including especially the tail and tongue, may have constituted different grades of gift. And lychees from the south, which could be, and in fact were, distributed one by one over a period of several weeks, giving them an aura of its special exclusivity, and no doubt also involving a considerable expenditure of time and effort in planning just who should receive such a mark of imperial favour, how many at a time, and in what order of preference, and recording it for the benefit of posterity. Not only was the emperor served a lot of food, but also the meal served often consisted of extremely expensive ingredients, as is apparent from the composition of the autumn breakfast that enumerated just now. Edible bird's nests, which gourmets value for their texture rather than their flavour, were a hugely expensive import from Southeast Asia, as we know, in fact, from Americans trading in Guangzhou around this time, who commented that 136 pounds of the finest bird's nest would sell for the astronomical price of 3,500 silver dollars. So to include not one but two dishes involving bird's nests was distinctly lavish. Nor was this meal in any way exceptional. My study of imperial menus kept in the archives shows that the emperor was served bird's nest at least once a day, every day. Incidentally, he took a very close personal interest in what he was served, often requesting certain foods or dishes cooked by particular cooks. And that, that included bird's nests, although in this case, whether for their culinary merits or their usefulness, of, their usefulness as items of conspicuous consumption, it's impossible to tell. He also, in a humanizing moment, more than once sent back a healthy meal sent over by his mother and ordered up a completely different meal instead. In the 18th century, as in antiquity, banquets were held for all kinds of public occasions to celebrate imperial birthdays, to honor those who, like the emperor, had lived to a ripe old age, to feast successful candidates in the national civil service examinations, to give the troops a good send-off or to celebrate a military victory, or to impress official visitors. At imperial banquets, the style of food depended on the occasion and on the guest list. In principle, predominantly Manchu-style food was served at banquets honoring diplomatic missions and at seasonal and anniversary banquets held for the emperor and his court, which were attended by inner-Asian dignitaries such as the Mongol princes and Tibetan nobles. While at banquets that honored those who had passed the examinations or who were 80 or 90 years old, predominantly Chinese-style food was served. The distinctions between the different types of cuisine extended to the manner of service, at least at the beginning of the dynasty. For instance, with mansions for some time after the conquest still bringing their knives to the table to cut their meat, whereas the art of cutting was one of the most important skills of Chinese chefs who would simply never send uncut meat to the table. In each and every case, banquet food was classified into different grades which governed both the amount of food, in other words, the number of dishes, being served to each person and the quality of the ingredients. Everything depended on the person's rank in the official hierarchy. Some imperial banquets involved hundreds of people seated at tables arranged in seven rows of seven tables each, facing east, west, and south. I know that only makes 49. Um, if you have seven people at each table, but there were more than that. The emperor facing always the most honorific direction of south. Less important guests would be entertained on or below the terrace outside the great hall the high table was placed. Music, dancing, acrobatics, and games of skill entertained the guests as they ate, perhaps not sword dances. 
anything they didn't eat, their leftovers, like leftovers from the emperor's extraordinarily elaborate meals were distributed according to the hierarchy. Court cuisine itself was a complicated hybrid of regional cuisines. Before the Manchus arrived in Beijing, Beijing cuisine had essentially been much the same as Shandong cuisine. When the Manchus first arrived in the 17th century, they brought their own chefs with them, but over time began recruiting chefs from all over the empire. The presence of chefs specializing in different cuisines inevitably brought about a kind of fusion cuisine at court, as did the constant policies of the Qing emperors to represent the different ethnic groups within the empire in a form of multiculturalism, if you like. There came to be a new palace cuisine called the Manchu Chinese Banquet, the subject of a multi-part TV series, among other things, now. It was an eclectic style involving multiple courses of prescribed ingredients and potentially lasting several days. It was not generally featured in state banquets, however, where one might have thought it would demonstrate ethnic harmony. It was more likely to be the kind of fare found in the kitchens of government offices. And but towards the end of the 18th century, this Manchu Chinese banquet became the height of fashion in the provinces, including in Jiangnan, where the center of Chinese elite culture was. And the Manchu Chinese banquet itself developed its own regional variants. So these banquets became part of a fashion system tinged with ethno-political as well as regional culinary overtones. Beyond the court, a banquet was a very common form of entertainment, but it also could oil social or political wheels. All kinds of occasions ranging from family events such as births and marriages to gatherings of fellow provincials in the capital and other social occasions that might or might not contain political overtones. All these were marked by banquets, more or less elaborate, depending on the occasions of the host and the guests. Given the rather strict doors of assembly, which regarded any gathering of more than about 10 people with great suspicion, these eating events sometimes served as cover for political activities, of course. Often a special cook would be hired for the occasion, or, as time went on, increasingly a restaurant was called upon to provide the banquet, either on its own premises or by providing highly sophisticated catering services to wealthier homes. In Beijing, caterers had their own professional organizations with headquarters where a prospective host could send his steward to hire them, according to well-established rules intended to protect against both extortionate prices and exploitation. Caterers sometimes brought in their own temporary kitchens, which they set up under canopies in the courtyards of private homes. At private banquets, as official functions, everything had its meaning. There were different ways of seating people. One's distance from the host was a distinctive sign of elevation, and so on. One thinks of seating the guest of honor to the right of the host in Western culture. The food served also was freighted with meaning with display often as much a concern as fine foods, just as with official banquets. Thus, the great 18th century gourmet, Yuan Mei, commented scornfully on the tendency among his contemporaries to serve vast quantities of what he thought was completely tasteless food made up of expensive ingredients like bird's nests. He commented that if the point was to show off the host's great wealth, he might as well have been served a dish of pearls. After one such showy dining experience, he begged his host, if you value my friendship, please don't ever invite me to dinner again. <laughs> With the end of the empire and the series of violent transformations that marked China's 20th century, banqueting did not come to an end. Even with the establishment of the People's Republic in 1949, this way of conducting business and socializing continued more or less as usual. Yet the whole idea of banqueting was contradictory, one might say counterintuitive. 
because almost by definition it brought to mind great inequalities, thus at the peak of the egalitarian impulse. In the early years of the People's Republic, fine dining became a guilty pleasure because it obviously could be achieved only through exploitation of the masses. But that is not to say that some people didn't manage to eat quite well. At the same time, official efforts were directed at keeping regional culinary traditions alive, despite great centralization. But for a while, banquets remained relatively low-key. But by the late 1970s, when the Cultural Revolution was over and life slowly readjusted to some kind of normality, the use of banking as an instrument of social and political interaction gradually returned to prominence. Anthropologist Judith Farquhar studied the way in which, by the 1980s, along with the rise of a new entrepreneurial order, banqueting in restaurants and conference centers, in rural courtyards and village and township meeting rooms, banqueting again became a central technique for building and maintaining social relationships. Expenditures on these meals were said to have reached into the billions of US dollars annually. Numerous newspaper articles appeared that documented and denounced the corrupt tendencies exemplified by these subsidized formal meals in business and government settings. Banqueting was generally seen as wasteful at best and at worst, and usually as leading to private enrichment at the expense of publicly responsible progress. So in contemporary China, banquets serve as many things as a place to make a deal place to build a network that can function outside official or proper channels, and of course as a source of pleasure. The modern banquet is a kind of club you have to join, and it has its own rituals, both specific and in terms of its larger purpose and effect. Careers can be advanced or sometimes blocked, new initiates are acknowledged and seniors venerated, insider information can be exchanged, new plans hinted at, subtle uh, insults and oversights can be set out and, and they always noticed and so on. So banquets today are a ritualized space beyond the control of government in which social and business arrangements are reconfigured in what seems superficially to be an informal setting. In most cases too, as in the past, modern banquets tend to be very much male-dominated and involve extensive downing of throat-burning grain liquor, which is not very important to be a ladylike thing to do. For this purpose, at least, I can foreign women counts honorary males, which has its own complications. But one cannot easily refuse to be a part of the club when invited in, not least because sometimes the presence of foreigners is used to justify a degree of lavishness that might otherwise be rather hard to justify. So food is a necessary part of life, and banquets, often on a lavish scale, are a normal or necessary part of doing business. And in the People's Republic, as in the 18th century and as in antiquity, Politics often intrudes into what we might have thought of as the more personal or private side of life. To quote Mao Zedong, a revolution is not a dinner party, but a dinner party can start a revolution. <laughs> the Frankie Lectures are made possible by the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie and are intended to present important topics in the humanities to a wide and general audience. The Spring 2011 series studies the history of food and culinary styles from prehistory to the present with a particular focus on Europe and the United States. This year's lectures are organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar taught by Paul Friedman, Chester D. Tripp Professor of History. Joanna Whaley-Cohen spoke on January 31, 2011 at the Whitney Humanities Center.